campuses, and uh, the title this morning is Knowing. And so uh, we're going to read the passage together. The words will come up behind me on the screen, and this is what it says in the New International Version. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, who glory in Christ Jesus, and who put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reasons for such confidence... If anyone else thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. I don't know about you, but um, some birthday presents you get, they really stand out, don't they? And uh, last year, um, for my birthday, uh, Megan, my daughter, uh, gave me a really unusual present. And uh, it, was, it was a picture frame, and in it, she had uh, managed to get hold of uh, a Dennis the Menace cartoon, page of Dennis the Menace cartoon. And she'd put, uh, and it was the cartoon, and she'd put it in uh, this picture frame, and she'd uh, given it to me. Uh, for my birthday and um, it, it, remi- it reminded her of many things it reminded me of many things when I was a kid growing up every Christmas I would get a Dennis the Menace or a Beryl the Peril annual for Christmas every year it gave me loads of ideas I tell you <laughs> I tell you, I used to love it. I used to love it. I used to, I used to, I remember I used to, Christmas afternoon, I would lie on the floor just reading, laughing to myself. And uh, Meg remembers as, uh, as she was growing up that often we would lie on the floor together and I would still laugh at the same cartoons, laugh at the same stuff. I remember that we used to read, uh, Paddington Bear stories and, um, uh, we used to read the, the Michael Bond uh, uh, stories about Paddington Bear. And uh, we would sit in bed together and we would read the stories. And I would put on voices for Mr. Gruber and Mr. Brown and, and whatever. And um, there'd be moments when what would happen is I'd be reading, but I'd be reading ahead as well. I don't know if you, you've ever done that. You're reading and you're watching what's coming. And I would be, I'd start to laugh at what was going to happen. And we'd get to a moment and she would just be going, Dad, Dad, wait. And I'd just be crying with laughter because I could 
could see what's coming. And she would then laughing. She doesn't know why she's laughing, but she's laughing because I'm laughing. And it would go on and on. And uh, in the end, we'd be crying, laughing at these stories. I tell you, we used to have such joy-filled times as we read together. Paul is in. Paul is stirring the church up. He wants them to have this sort of a joy, a joy. We live in a world where joy has been squeezed out of us. It is God who creates joy, God who wants us to enjoy life. And so when Paul writes this, finally my brothers rejoice in the Lord. Paul is adamant. We should be a people of joy. If we're going to shine like stars, he's effectively saying, if we're going to shine like stars in this crooked and depraved generation, it will be because our lives reflect the transforming work of Christ. Paul clearly expects such lives to be marked by overflowing joy. He expects our lives to be marked with joy. There isn't a person alive who doesn't want to live a joy-filled life. It's every person's aim. We try to buy it, holidays, cars, stuff. We go where we hope we're going to find it. Nightclubs, St. Mary's even. (laughs) We pursue relationships to experience it. And yet, for most of us, It's as elusive as a dry day in West Wales or a goal at Old Trafford. (laughs) Unless it's a Southampton goal, of course. We pursue relationships for it. We want joy. We want it. We'll do anything to get it. Tim Keller reminds, uh, in, uh, I was reading something he wrote the other day, and he reminds, he re- he reminds us of uh, what our mothers used to say to us, no sweets before dinner. Don't eat sweets before dinner. Do you remember your mother saying that to you? No sweets, you mustn't eat before dinner. Some of you probably are saying it probably regularly during the, w- during the week. No sweets, you can eat sweets, but not before dinner. Don't you eat any sweets before dinner because you won't. You won't eat your dinner. And normally it's too late because they've already eaten them. And they'd say, oh yeah, I'll eat my dinner. And of course they don't. The issue, Keller says, is this. Sugar masks the body's cry for nutrients. And similarly, he says, success, money, power, sex, all the things that this world has to offer mask the soul's real need. And joy in those other things has to disappear before we find the joy that really satisfies. Paul's antidote is four words. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice. Rejoice. The tense is imperative. It's a command. It's not an optional extra. Paul is convinced that joy is a choice. It's not just an emotional response. As far as joy is concerned, we mustn't be passive. We choose to be joyful. But Steve, you you don't know what my week has been like. You're right, I don't. 
I have no idea what your week has been like. But joy, this joy, is not based on how you feel. Its source is different to any other joy. Paul is talking about joy in the Lord. We experience this joy by orientating ourselves, orientating our lives towards Jesus Christ. We look towards him. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the writer to the Hebrews says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross for us. Jesus himself said this, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. This is a joy that springs out of what we believe and the choices we make. We need to stop chasing other things and pursue Christ. How do we do that? Well, it's as we think about him, who he is, what he's done for us, who we now are in him. We cannot help but be filled with joy as we do that, as we look to him and we think about him. We think about the fact that he is God's son who became a man for us that we might know the love that the father has lavished on us. We know that God is a father who lavishes his love on us. Jesus was fully God and fully man. He completely dealt with our problem of sin, our rebellion against God, our living for ourselves, our living independently of God. Through his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, we can draw near to the living God. We can come close to God in heaven. When we put our trust in Jesus, we receive grace from God. God freely gives us life in him. God's just anger at our rebellion, our wrongdoing, is completely satisfied by what Jesus did on our behalf on the cross. We get what we don't deserve and we don't get what we do deserve. We are now children of God. And God's spirit lives inside of us. And thinking on these things will cause joy to fill our souls. And if it doesn't cause joy to fill our souls, then there's something deeply wrong with our faith. If we constantly look to Jesus, his strength will daily come to us. The joy of the Lord will be our strength. Paul has clearly told this to the the Philippians before. But he says to them, this is a safeguard for you. Why do we need a safeguard? Why would we need a safeguard? Well, there's a battle for our joy. There are so many competing sources, so many things out there that will try to pressure you to squeeze the joy of God out of your soul. Because behind the scenes, there is an evil one. There is, the Bible says, a devil who will try to steal joy from you, will cause joy, the joy of the Lord to be far from you. And so Paul is pushing, he's encouraging, he's stirring, he's exhorting the Philippian believers. He's saying, make sure you rejoice in the Lord. Find your joy in God. Don't find it anywhere else. 
And he says to them, if you're going to do it, he says there are some keys. And there are three keys that we're going to look at this morning. And the first key is this, knowing what to watch out for. Knowing what to watch out for. Annette's uh, uh, family, there are some members of her family, um, uh, were uh, looking to get a timeshare. And uh, they got uh, uh, talking to some people and they ended up buying uh, a timeshare uh, on uh, the Thames. It was a riverboat. And they bought this timeshare on the Thames. Uh, They didn't uh, know much about it, but it sounded such a great deal. It sounded an absolutely fantastic deal. Guess what? Sunk without a trace. Not literally, but there was no deal. Cost them a lot of money. Confidence tricksters left them without anything. There are confidence tricksters, Paul says, that are out to steal your joy. And in a letter to the Galatian believers, he says this, what has happened to all your joy? In another point in the letter, he says, who's cut in on you? Paul knows that there, is a, there are enemies out there. The devil uses situations and people to steal your joy. So what do we need to look out for? The first thing we need to look out for if we're going to, is bad company. Paul didn't hold back. He calls these people dogs. I mean, the language is, the language is scary. Surely Paul shouldn't be using language like that. I tell you, he does not hold back. He said, these people, he said, they're dogs. He said, they're not like poodles. They are feral dogs. They hunt in packs. They're unclean. They're vicious. They do evil. These people are mutilators of the flesh because of what they are insisting that Christians have to do if they truly want to follow Christ. He says these people are adding to the gospel of grace. These people, he says, are Judaizers who are saying to become part of God's people, they have to be circumcised They were saying that Jesus was not enough. The gospel, it's clear. It's by grace we are saved through faith. The gospel is Jesus only and not Jesus plus. Anyone who says or even implies to be saved, we must be baptized, take bread and wine, communion, tithe, that's give 10% of our income or act in a specific way is bad company. You are saved by grace alone. Hallelujah. It's good news. You don't have to do anything. It's the grace of God. We do not earn God's favor. Paul also says we avoid bad company, but we have to stop believing our own press. He talks about self-confidence. Self-confidence before God is a disaster. Paul calls it confidence in the flesh. None of us have any right to stand before a holy God because of who we are or what we've done. If that was true, then Paul would have had more reason than anyone else to do that. He'd been circumcised in line with Old Testament law. He had an immaculate heritage. He trained as a Pharisee. He knew the law inside out. He'd had the best teachers. He sat at the feet of one of the famous rabbis, Gamaliel. 
He was well taught in the law. He understood the law. He was zealous for the law, going as far as hunting down and persecuting people he thought were undermining uh, Judaism. Christians hunted them down, had them executed, many of them. He thought he'd lived a faultless life. He believed his own press. He thought he was doing God a favor. How wrong he was. And then one day on a road to Damascus, out about his business, looking to hunt down more Christians, suddenly there's a moment Jesus Christ encounters him. And in that moment, everything changes. He no longer believed his own press. He found out how far from God he really was. Self-confidence counted for nothing. His attempts at righteousness fell short of fulfilling God's law by a mile. He found out that pride steals real joy. And as a result of that encounter with Jesus, Paul comes to a very simple faith. Warren Wiersbe sums it up like this. There is only one good work that will get us into heaven. The finished work of Christ on the cross. There is only one good thing, one good work that will get you into heaven. And that is the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross on your behalf. You will get there no other way. Anybody who tells you otherwise is bad company. You see, in the Old Testament, circumcision was only ever intended to be a sign of something that had happened in the heart. It's a bit like the, it, would have, it was a bit like the equivalent of a wedding ring today. A wedding ring of itself is just a bit of gold, but it, it stands for something that has happened here. It stands for promises that you have made declarations that you've made before God. Of itself, it's just a piece of God and it means nothing. I could throw it away and it wouldn't make any difference. And that might be really cross actually if I did that, so I won't do it. But the, the reality is, it's about something inside. And that's what was true about circumcision. It stood for something inside. And Paul is saying it's not about the external. It's about what's happened on the inside. And Paul is saying, telling us that people worship by the Spirit of God, not out of duty, but out of desire to be with God, to worship God. Such people, he says, glory in Christ Jesus. They rely on nothing else, no one else. What about us? I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones this week and he was talking, uh, reading through what he said about this passage and he said, he just posed this question, what would your reaction be if you found out that Jesus, that there, Jesus never existed? What would your reaction be? Oh, that's a blow. What am I going to do now? Or would you be devastated? I tell you, if you would not be, if you wouldn't be devastated by that, because you have not understood the gospel, because Jesus Christ is your all, and I tell you, if that, if I heard something like that in the truth, and I want to tell you, it isn't, because Jesus Christ was a real historic figure. 
And Jesus Christ was the Son of God. I declare it to you, it's true. But if it wasn't, I tell you, my world would end. My world would end. I would have nothing else. My life wouldn't be worth living. Because he is all that I have. Is he all to you? Is he all to you? What's stealing your joy? Busyness? Pressures of life? Circumstances? What's stealing your joy? God wants you to know this morning. He wants you to know that there's joy for you in Jesus Christ. He wants you to lift your eyes and look to him. The second key is this. Knowing what's best for us. I don't know if you've been following, listening to the news this week. I've been listening to the news. And what I've been, what I've been listening to is uh, uh, companies, uh, uh, they are producing their accounts at this times of the, times of the year. And for some of them, there are uh, profits warnings. There's uh, companies declaring uh, how they've done this last year. Basically, what they've done, they have uh, looked at their profits, they've looked at uh, the profits and they've looked at their losses and they're basically telling people, have they had a good year? Has it been good? And I don't know if you've been following on the news the story about Tesco, but uh, there's been a period clearly where Tesco for a period of time were looking to inflate their profit. They were looking to cover over certain things to make them, the, the company look really good and look to be of greater value than it really was. Paul is using here, he's using the sort of language of profit and loss as he writes this passage. He's talking about um, things that were to our profit, to our gain. He's talking about things that we could count on the positive side for us in life. Things that most people would, would use. The word he uses, the, two, the word he uses for um, for. For, for counting was, it carries the sense of evaluating or s- assessing. Counting what really matters, okay, will ensure we don't miss out on real joy. What really matters? What really is profit? What really is loss, Paul is saying? What can you really count on? What's going to give you joy? What are the sorts of things that you can count on to give you joy? And Paul does this assessment. And he wants you to ask the question this morning. He wants you to think about what is best for us. Do you know what's best for you? Do you know the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ? Do you know it? Do you know the surpassing greatness? greatness of knowing Christ. Is he your pearl of great price, your treasure in the field, the one that was worth giving up everything for? Paul says, I consider a loss everything compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. Are you holding on to inappropriate things? Are you holding on to stuff tightly if so, it's because you've not understood the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. Losing those things is in reality game. Paul lost his liberties in prison. He lost his comforts. He, he talks about his own experiences in terms of dangers. 
from bandits and from rivers and from stuff that goes on. He was hungry, he was thirsty, he was needy on occasions. He lost his security, he was shipwrecked. He spent a night, we're told, on the open sea. He lost friends. He lost his reputation. And yet Paul says, I have gained Christ. All of those things are nothing. When that person in the office makes fun of you for your faith, when so-called friends Walk away from you because of your lifestyle. You won't do the things that they want to do. When people tarnish your reputation, when people laugh at you, mock you, when you don't get the promotion you think you deserve because you stand up for what's right and what's true, you won't fudge things. God wants you to know that Jesus Christ is worth it. Jim Elliot, just before being killed by Orca Indians, said this, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Do you know that? Do you know the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ? You see, Paul says... Everything else is worthless. Paul says, I can't, can't it rubbish. The language is garbage. Kitchen scraps. Literally excrement. That's really what the word means. That's, that's what's behind it. He said, it is rubbish. Those things are worthless. What was important to him was gaining Christ and being found in him. He says, not having a righteousness, a right standing before God that came from himself or that came from keeping the law. Alec Motyer in his commentary calls that a do-it-yourself righteousness. I tell you, I am rubbish at do-it-yourself around the house. Rubbish. I think every shelf I've ever put up has failed the ball-bearing test. I had a builder friend once who, I, I put up all these shelves Shelves in my old house, in this, uh, 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 shelves around three walls, and they were supposed to be in line with each other, running smoothly around. It was, I mean, they were, they were like that. It was just like, you put a ball bearing on it, and it raced off the edge. <laughs> the books just about held in place by their weight. But the friction just stopped them sliding off, because they were so poor, the shelves were so poorly done. I don't do DIY well. Paul says, none of you do DIY well. If you are trying to please God by what you do, you will get nowhere. DIY righteousness will get you nowhere. It will cause you heartache and pain. Anyone who relies on their own efforts to meet God's perfect standards will find out too late your efforts are worthless. If Paul's efforts in his own words were rubbish, then no one has a chance. Wisby put it like this, Paul had enough morality to keep him out of trouble, but not enough righteousness to get him into heaven. Do you know it's all rubbish? Have you counted all things lost? Do you know that it's all about grace? Instead of relying 
on our own efforts. It's receiving the righteousness that comes from God that's by faith. The righteousness that comes from God requires the law to be satisfied. God God's law has been broken by all of us. Not one of us will ever stand before God and say that we have kept his law perfectly, lived the way that he would want us to live. The punishment for that is death. Separation from God. Eternal separation from God. God sent Jesus to solve the problem because we never could. Our DIY wouldn't get us anywhere. God is the lawgiver. Jesus Christ was born to a woman under the law, we're told. In his life, he fulfilled the demands of the law. He lived a perfect life. He kept the law. And so when he went to the cross willingly, he went on our behalf. He'd never done anything wrong. And on the cross, God punished him instead of us. He punished him instead of us. Our sins can be forgiven and God's wrath is satisfied. God's just wrath at sin is dealt with once and for all. The penalty is paid. Jesus is righteous before God in its fullest sense. And the amazing truth of the gospel is this, is that God credits, imputes Jesus' righteousness to those who put their trust in him. This is the righteousness of God by faith. God takes Jesus' righteousness and he gives it to us. He credits it to our account. We have done nothing. It's all of grace. Briefly, the third key is this, knowing the right person. Paul's conclusion is that joy is found in what you, not in what you know, but in who you know. He says it's more about who you know. I remember some years ago, and a friend's, uh, uh, it was his 40th birthday, we went up to London, and uh, uh, we ended up going to a club uh, that uh, he had a friend who owned in London. It was one of these posh clubs. And uh, it's, it's my worst nightmare, really, because I hate dancing. I can't dance. It's just, uh, just awful. Okay, so we, we go to this club, and uh, we get taken into the VIP lounge in this club. I've never been anywhere like it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, people sitting around. And then someone comes up with a, says, would you like a drink? Um, uh, you have to have a drink. The minimum bar bill is 500 pounds. I'm like, 500 quid? I, I, take me out of here. I can't, you know, I, 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 what are we going to do? What are we going to do? I tell you, it wasn't, I, what I knew didn't help at that moment. The only thing that got us out of there was the name of the person who owned the club. It's about who you know. And Paul is saying, it's about who you know. Paul's cry is, I want to know Christ. What does knowing Christ mean? Three aspects to it. The first is that it, 
It implies a truth which is understood and believed. Knowing Christ is believing what the Bible says about him. Knowing Christ is is believing what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? Do you believe it above and beyond what anybody in the world will tell you, what philosophers will say, what political correctness says? Do you believe what the Bible says about Jesus Christ? The second aspect of knowing is, is it speaks of a personal intimacy, like a husband knowing his wife, Adam knowing Eve, a deep intimacy. Knowing Christ is not just about knowing facts, not just about believing what the Bible says. It's about a personal relationship. It's about an intimacy with him. There is something, there is something about you love him. You love being in his presence. You love praying to him. You love coming to worship because you're going to be near Jesus. You're drawing near Jesus and you're doing it with others who believe the same. I tell you, if you don't love local church, you haven't got the gospel. Because if you've got the gospel, you love Jesus and you want to be with people who love him. It's true. If you cut, if you, if you, if you, if, if you play fast and loose with church, I'm going to tell you, I'm not sure you've really understood the gospel. I tell you, I love, I love the local church. I love it. I love being with you because you love Jesus and I love him. And when we are together and we worship him together, there is something profound. There was something in the worship this morning that was beautiful. The third thing is that there is a practical dimension to knowing. Essentially, nothing is truly known unless it affects our daily lives. If we truly know Jesus, we will live differently in the world around us. What about you? Is it just about head knowledge? Do you have a vibrant personal relationship with him, with Jesus? Has he changed your life? Or are you living the same old way? Aping the world around you, doing what everybody else around you is doing. Or are you different because you love him and you want to follow him and want to please him? You're not trying to do anything to earn his favour, but you just love Jesus. Do you know him? If you know Jesus, it's powerful, Paul says. He says you will know the power of his resurrection. The the Holy Spirit dwells inside those who know Christ. The very power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells inside us, we're told in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 3. It's the the only way that we can live a transformed life is because Christ empowers us. The only way we can live a transformed life is if Christ empowers us. If God is for us, who can be against us? It's powerful, but it's also painful. Paul talks about knowing the fellowship of sharing his sufferings. They go together. If you know the Holy Spirit inside you, you will experience the opposition and rejection of the world around who do not love Jesus. They don't love the things of God. This world does not love Jesus Christ. 
And if you are a follower of him, you will experience the sufferings of Christ because this world will reject you because it rejected him. I'd love to tell you it won't be like that, but I tell you there is a cost to following Jesus Christ. And yet for us, for the, good, the good news is it's been reversed. You see, for Jesus, he experienced the suffering and then went to the cross and was resur- died and was resurrected from the dead. For us, we first and foremost experience the resurrection power of God. That gives us strength to cope with this, this life, the suffering of this life. He shares his new life with us. If his spirit dwells inside us, we have the power to cope with all the opposition, all the suffering, all the tough things that happen in life. Anything this world can throw at us, we have within us the resources to press through in Christ. And as we take up our cross every day, we become more and more like him. One day, Paul says, by knowing Christ, we will somehow, by an amazing demonstration of God's power, we will be raised from the dead, and then our joy will know no end. That is the promise of the living God to you. If you have never given your life to Jesus Christ, then today I urge you, give your life to him. Know him. Put your trust in him. If you've lost your joy this morning, if you've just been struggling, if you've taken your eyes off Jesus, I urge you today, fix your eyes on him, the author and the perfecter of your faith, the starter and the finisher of your faith. As we draw to a close... Watch out for anything or anyone who wants to add to the work of the cross. Remember, it's not what you know, it's who you know. Do you know the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ? Have you received grace from God? Life in Christ. Joy from heaven. I read this quote just before I left the house this morning. Joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Joy is the surest sign of the presence of God. Is your life filled with joy? Is it filled with joy? Do you come here this morning or are you carrying the world on your shoulders? Or is your life marked with joy? God wants to meet you this morning.